Father, I thank you again for this opportunity to, to be here to preach your message of stewardship. We thank you, God, for creating us. We thank you for giving us those things that we need. And we thank you for giving us those things that we have. Father, we, we hope that today we gain a better understanding of the stewardship or the responsibilities of stewardship of your treasures. We pray for the wisdom to make the right decisions with those treasures. And we pray for the strength to use those treasures to the glory of your name. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So as most of you know, um, or some of you know, I am on the vestry of St. David's. The vestry is kind of like a board of directors, a council of advisors, if you will, uh, that helps manage the finances and the workings of the church. Um, In addition to being on the vestry, I also serve as the stewardship chair. And the job of the stewardship chair is to report to the vestry where we are every month relative to actual pledges received versus the pledges that y'all committed two years ago, actually, for this year, and whether we're on track with what we're projected to have received. And I do this using reports that Janet prepares for me at the end of each month that tallies the total pledges that we've received by person for each month. And I report that back to the vestry and also to to you guys through our monthly newsletter. The vestry elected me for this position, and it's a duty that I take seriously and humbly based on the sensitive nature of the information that I review. Before, Before we start, though, I think it's important for you guys to know that when I began my research on stewardship, I went to the Christian bookstore and I went online and I took notes that I thought were important to today's discussion. And uh, I thought I had plenty of material. So I sat down and I, I took my notes and I put them in a presentation so I could talk to you about them today. And I timed myself and I came up with a total of about 10 minutes. So I said, oh boy. <laughs> so I decided to set things aside and, and pray on them. And um, I prayed on what else I might actually say. The Holy Spirit basically took over from there. And, and sure, a lot of what I'm going to say to you today, I, I took from those notes, but a lot of it are my own words. And I'm telling you this because it's likely that Father Jose may ask some of you to do the same as I'm doing today. And you might be nervous or anxious, but if you allow the Holy Spirit to guide you and just trust in Him, it all seems to work out. It's amazing. I just wanted to share that with you. So this morning I plan on sharing with you a little bit about why I think being committed to the church through your pledge is important. As I did my research on the subject of financial stewardship, I kept coming back to stewardship in general. I couldn't get away from the fact that stewardship was more than just about finances. So first let's look at the scripture that Father Jose asked me to preach on today. And that's 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 8. And that says, Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. 
And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. So as Paul writes to the Corinthians here, he's not just talking about financial giving. He's describing how our lives should be given. There's three words that can sum up what I think he's trying to say. The first word is action. What you do affects outcomes. Not what you mean to do, but what you actually do. It's not enough to mean to do something. You've got to actually do it. So for instance, you're stranded on the side of the road because your car breaks down and you say, well, I meant to service my car. Well, it's a little late, right? (laughs) Or your house burns down, you don't have any insurance, you say, oh, I meant to buy that insurance policy. It's more than about good intentions. Those are all good intentions that you mean to do things. But Paul urges wholehearted action. A full commitment to what you say, whether it's about life, your time, your health. You need to give it your all. Pour yourself into it and be generous because action matters. The second word is attitude. Paul urges giving what's in your heart with no compulsion because God loves cheerful giving. That's because actions without the right attitude can be empty. Imagine this. Alex is ready to propose to Deanna. The flowers are on the table. The candles are burning quietly. Barry White's playing in the background. It's the perfect moment. Perfect moment. And then I say to her, well, Deanna, you know, we've been together for years and I don't really think we're good for each other and I'm not sure I really love you. But we've been together for such a long time, I guess I should propose. What do you think Deanna would say to me? Well, the action was there, but the attitude was completely unacceptable. If we give to God grudgingly out of duty, He's not impressed at all. We might be giving with our time, our talents, or treasures, but God probably defines that as sowing sparingly if they're given with the wrong attitude. God seeks our complete trust in Him, so He asks you to give cheerfully. And lastly is the word abundance. Paul says that where someone does the right action and with the right attitude, then God will bless that person abundantly. We're going to come back to that in a minute. There's a strong connection between God's kingdom and our possessions. If Christians really believe that this life is short and that eternity is forever, then the most logical way to deal with money and possessions is to live simply and give generously. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, for where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. So let me repeat that, because it's an important statement. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, for where your treasures is there, your heart will be also. The Bible has about 500 verses on prayer and fewer than 500 verses on faith. But there's over 2,300 verses on money and possessions. And over 10% of the New Testament deals with financial matters. I found that astounding. Why do you think that is? Well, when it comes to managing our finances, 
we have to choose between two different approaches. The values of our society, the values of the Bible. The values of our society tell us to find happiness and peace through money. The values of the Bible tell us to find the desire of our hearts in the Lord and to be content with what He gives us. Remember, if we follow the world's wisdom, money will dominate us. But if we submit to the wisdom above, as St. James says in his book, chapter 3, verse 17, money will serve us as we use it to serve God. So why then such an emphasis on money and possessions? Well, one reason is that God probably knew we'd have trouble managing our money and that we spend a lot of time earning, spending, and investing it. Another reason is that money can have a profound effect on our personal relationships. We spend more than half of our time thinking about money. And it's also a cause of conflict in marriages and potential divorces. But Scripture relates money to God. In the first book of John, chapter 3, verse 17... Jesus says, But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? You see, we can assume an appearance of spirituality, but we can't fake the way we use our money and possessions. God can see into our hearts. It really does all come from God's grace. It's about the relationship of loving sharing, giving, and providing. God teaches us to trust Him, so our attitude from actions really matter. Remember, loving, sharing, giving, and providing. So let me give you an example of my own. When I was in the army stationed in Germany back in the 70s, I had two very close friends. One was a sergeant by the name of Frank Tucker, and the other was equal to my own pay grade, Tom McGuire. Tom was a Christian. Frank and I were not. We managed to have a good time together nonetheless. Since we didn't have cell phones or internet back then, we lost touch after I moved to California six months after my separation from the Army. Fast forward 33 years to now. As most of you know, last year Father Bill Blumquist decided to move back east to New Hampshire. I decided I'd go along with him because he was crazy enough to want to take the northern route in the winter. This was a week before Christmas. He had family in San Francisco, so it made sense. So I flew to Salt Lake to meet him there, and we took the drive uh, back east. About three days before that trip, Tom, my friend from the Army, who I hadn't spoken in 33 years, and who now lived in Omaha, reached out to my youngest daughter on Facebook and asked her, you know, are you somehow related to me, to Alex? It was interesting that by chance, after 33 years, he found me three days before a trip that would take me within two miles of his house. It was also interesting that he mentioned our friend Frank, who, now li- who had, at this point lived in Nashville, and who he had kept in touch with over the years, was dying of cancer and was asking about me. The story gets better. After making a side trip to see Tom on our way to New Hampshire, Tom and I pledged to see Frank early in the next year, which we did. 
Frank was dying. During our visit with him, we asked if he wanted to accept the Lord as his Savior and if he wanted to confess himself as a sinner. We prayed over him and asked him to follow our lead in prayer, and he did and accepted Christ that day. He died a few weeks thereafter. I wanted to share that story with you because it's an example of people being blessed by the Lord in ways we might never imagine. The Lord's blessing on that day was as much for Frank as it was for me and Tom. With that, how could I not trust that the Lord will provide for me abundantly? By being God's children, we are His stewards on earth. Now, to be a responsible steward, we first need to figure out what our stewardship responsibilities are. So you first need that. <clears throat> pardon me, you first need to ask yourself, what financial resources has God given you? And what about other resources, relational or temporal, earthly resources? So once you take the time to identify what He's given you, you see life differently. You're able to look at the bigger picture. Your life's resources will look different when you view them in the light of the One that gave them to you. Decisions you make will look different to you. Now there's three principles to describe what I'm talking about. Number one, the first principle of stewardship is to be faithful with whatever God gives you. And that includes what He's already given you. Experiences, abilities, personality traits, interests, values. Whatever He's given to you or will give to you, we need to be good stewards of it. The second principle is to not worry about what God hasn't given you. How many times have we strived to achieve something that we don't have when we should be thriving with what we already have? And the last principle is prayer. When you have a thought about something, take it to God. More often than not, that road will become much clearer to you. So why should we give? Well, let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 17. Moses tells the Israelites at the time of the Feast of Tabernacles, Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessings of the Lord your God, that He has given to you. Well, to me, that tells us that we should tithe because He's blessed us. When we give money to a church, the money is obviously used to keep the lights on, pay the staff. But it goes beyond that. Think of ways that the church has ministered to you and to others. Sometimes to people you might not even know. The financing that tithing provides may go to routine everyday things, but more importantly, it goes to telling a lost world about the good news of the gospel. Then again, Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 4 tells us, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they might be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that you may be giving in secret. 
And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So what does it mean to give cheerfully? So as mature Christians, we probably realize our responsibilities and stewardship, but then struggle in prayer and with family about what to give. Sure, we'll seek God's word for how we can serve Him in the church, but we should never rationalize that it's okay not to follow our call to use our gifts or to refrain from sharing our faith or not to give at all. As people saved by grace, we should be overwhelmed with gratitude for what Christ has done for us so that we naturally desire to serve Him with all our heart. Remember, we aren't forced to do anything. We're saved by faith alone in what Christ has done for us, period. So once we develop a strong sense of gratitude for the grace that He's blessed us with, we start to think about things like, how much do I keep for myself? How much do I give away? How much should there be left over for us to play with? And how much of it should go to the church? I can tell you there aren't any concrete answers. It's a call and a response of our heart and of our faith. We're given general parameters from Scripture, much as Father Steve talked about last week. But it's up to us to figure out how to apply them. It's a hard subject to broach, even for me. Deanna and I accepted Christ into our lives as our Savior about four years ago. In the beginning of that walk, we weren't sure of a lot of things. Only that we felt a longing for the Lord and a desire to serve and to love those that we had come to know at St. David's. Since then, we've met others within our diocese we call friends. And I can tell you, and perhaps this is the same for, for some of you, but the relationships we have with our Christian brothers and sisters is different from the relationships we have with our secular friends. There's a trust and a closeness that I can't describe, at least to those outside of the Christian world. They just wouldn't get it. I've had a peace in my life that I never experienced before Christ came into my life. And actually, my relationship with Deanna, which was always good, has now developed a much deeper love for each other. One I can't imagine we could have been able to achieve without Christ in our lives. And Jesus has called upon me to serve Him in many different ways. Sometimes people wonder why I do as much as I do. I guess I've always felt like as long as my service doesn't conflict with my family or my work responsibilities, and believe me, God would never ask any of us to do anything that would get in the way of our responsibilities of family and work. How can I say no? We receive so much from Him. Many times in ways we don't even realize. How then can I say no? How can I say no to the one that has blessed me with a life that I know I don't come close to deserving? How can I say no when I'm asked to do something so small when taken in the context of the free time of my life? but so large because it's something He's asked me to do. How can we say no? As for our financial stewardship, Deanna and I are no different than you are. Just like you, we have a mortgage, we have car payments, we pay taxes, we have many other charities that require our giving. Our daughter just got married. 
We all have uh, financial responsibilities, and I'm not saying it's easy. And I do believe that God wants us to meet those responsibilities. God, however, shouldn't be considered a financial burden. That's what the cheerful giving or the cheerful giver thing is all about. There should absolutely be a line item in your family budget for God. But it shouldn't be seen as a burden or as an obligation. It should be seen as a gift to the one that's given you everything. Typically, when we spend money, there is some tangible evidence of a purchase. When you tithe to your church, most times that evidence isn't so tangible. Sure, this church in particular does open their books to you so that you can see how your pledges are being used, even if many times the ministry of the church spreading the gospel may go unseen. Every single day, every single day, I thank the Lord for my wife and children, my health, the health of my family, my job, all those things that I enjoy. Of course, I pray for others, but the point is, thanking Him in prayer for all that I have just isn't enough. Because all that I have is because of Him. I can tell you about the person I was before Christ came into my life. All the anger and the demons I live with. But I am who I am today because He's graced upon me more blessings than I deserve. And I want to do whatever I can for Him to express my thankfulness and my love. There is one thing we have to be careful about, though. Some believe that since you only need to tithe whatever amount you can cheerfully part with, that they, that might be interpreted to mean that we only need, need to give up to the point where we, give, we begin to resent the amount that we're giving. I don't think that's what God was talking about when He referred to a cheerful giver. Since all that we have comes from Him, we should be cheerful and grateful that He allows us to keep the majority of what we're giving. Or what we're given, actually. Our focus should be on being cheerful for what He's done for us. So many countries and government entities require a lot more from us than God does. The fact that He allows us to enjoy a large part of of His blessings should be a great source of happiness to all of us. He's not really interested in what others require and what we do about it, although He does expect that we'll obey authority, which means you guys have to pay your taxes. (laughs) What He's really interested in is our personal relationship. A gentleman by the name of Randy Alcorn, an American Protestant author, says that God makes it apparent that it is His business to watch us with intent interest, to see what we do with the money He has entrusted in us. What we do with our money will influence the course of eternity. We can't serve both God and money, and God knows our attitudes and our actions better than us. The best way to inspire others to grow in generosity is to set the example ourselves. Let's go back to the verse where Paul says, Remember this, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. So to illustrate, think about farming. When you give or sow, your gift is used as a seed that grows into a crop. The more you give, the more bounty there'll be in the kingdom. Both the seed of the gift and the maturity of the person who gives 
will grow. That which is given to the poor is far from being lost. As a seed that's put into the ground and buried for some time, it will spring up and bear fruit. And the sower shall receive it again multiplied. In the next verse, Paul says, Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So he's saying every man according to what they've decided in their hearts. That doesn't refer to quantity, but instead of the quality of giving or the manner in which we are to give. Giving joyfully, giving willingly, so that we give our own free will, of our own free choice, from our very heart, without pain or worry of mind, and without force or obligation. In Paul's first letter to Timothy, in chapter 6, verse 7, he reminds Timothy that we come into the world with nothing and leave it with nothing. So you see, God is the owner of all that we have. We might believe this in theory, but sometimes deny it in practice. As we see in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 17, where Moses is saying to the Israelites, You may say to yourself, My power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. But he reminds them, Remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you the ability to produce wealth. I may have a car, uh, two cars, a house, this, this, and that, but who gave me the ability to be able to earn the money to buy those material things? It was God. We have to remember that everything we have came from God. So it belongs to God. Not just our money and possessions, but our families and our careers. Once we understand that, then we get what stewardship really means. And as I end, I just want to leave you with a couple of things. Andrew Murray, a South African minister and church leader from the 1800s to the early 1900s, said it best when he said, the world asks, what does a man own? Christ asks, how does he use it? In verse 15 of, that, of this same chapter, Paul says, thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift. We might think the unspeakable gift is the grace bestowed on us. But it might be that he means Jesus Christ is the unspeakable gift. A gift we all have reason to be thankful for. Amen. Amen.